Acts 27. I invite you to turn to Acts 27. It's a story of a shipwreck, one of the greatest shipwreck stories of all time, and certainly one of the best told and most exact stories of an ancient shipwreck. Speaking of shipwrecks, for our 25th anniversary, I've told this story to some of you, Barb and I had hoped to go on a cruise. But finances at that time, or rather lack of finances at that time, prevented such. So for our 25th anniversary cruise, we borrowed a pontoon boat and went out on Lake Murray. We found a quiet cove off of an island out in the middle. We planned to anchor there and spend the night on that pontoon boat. How romantic. What could be more romantic than rocking in the gentle waves of a summer night on Lake Murray? About 9 p.m., however, I thought I saw on the distant western horizon a faint flicker of light. I studied it area a little more carefully, and sure enough, several more faint flickers of light on the horizon. I thought perhaps I should check my weather app. This was about 15 years ago. Weather app was rather rudimentary and slow. When it finally came up on my phone, it showed a giant wall of green and red. Was it headed our way? Surely not. It was so very calm where we were, and that was so very far away. But after some time, the wind began to pick up, and those gently rocking waves were considerably less gentle. In time, even in that wind-protected cove, our anchor wasn't holding our pontoon boat anymore. Our peaceful, romantic evening had evaporated. I couldn't hold the boat in position without the motor running to constantly adjust. So this was no way to spend the night. I thought about beaching the boat, but you can't beach a borrowed boat on the sand. So I knew we had to do something otherwise. Suddenly, as storms do here in this region, the rain and dis wind just descended with a fury, and we better determined that we'd better get while the getting was good. Problem was, I had memorized all the landmarks during the daytime, so <clears throat> I thought, you know, I just have a general sense that it's that way. <laughs> now it's pitch black, of course, and the wind and the rain. Well. We determined to head that way. I didn't have a GPS on the phone in those days. When we got out of that little cove, we met the full ferocity of the wind and the waves. We had indeed been quite sheltered in that cove, more so than I had realized. The waves were now breaking over the bow of the pontoon boat and flooding the deck. I told Barb we should put our life jackets on. She put on two. Forward progress was very difficult, going in and out of the troughs and so forth. We were being tossed about. At one point, I had to throttle back the boat, and that's when I heard Barb praying out loud over the wind and the waves. She was down on her knees, holding on for dear life, but praying with the voice of Billy Graham, Lord, save us! Well, Barb and I obviously made it, but that frightening 25th anniversary cruise 
is forever etched on our minds. Shipwrecks are perhaps more terrifying even than auto accidents and airplane crashes. Why? Is it the prolonged agony of a shipwreck? The slow motion unfolding of it all? You've read the accounts of the Titanic going down, trying to load and lower the lifeboats, women and children only, men being shot who were trying to get onto the lifeboats, the mayhem, people running this way and that, the stern we hear lifted up into the air and the propellers were visible, creaking and groaning of the ship and cracking and people jumping off, the lights flickering and finally the descent of the ship and with all those who are still aboard beneath the surface. And then that awful, they say, that awful, dreadful silence. Shipwreck. It sends shivers down our spines, doesn't it? Well, we come today to the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul and his companions and a great many others. Let's turn our attention to the Lord as we read his word. Father, we come now to this, your word, which you've preserved so magnificently for us. And we invite you to speak now. Your servants are listening. And I ask you to speak through your servant, the weak one, the foolish one. Make your message the wisdom of God. Through the, through the foolishness and through the weakness, we long to hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 27, 1. And when it was decided, you remember Paul had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Who's we? Well, Luke's writing, of course. And then there's this close companion, Aristarchus and Paul. They were embarking up the coast from Caesarea Philippi on this particular ship. And the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And from there they put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, you can see those coastlines on the map, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. Now the prior ships making their way up the coast were ship uh, coast-hugging small vessels but this was a large, deep water, ocean-going vessel uh, and an Alexandrian ship, and those were often grain freighters. This is uh, a reconstruction, obviously, of a, a model of what one would have been. The length would be about 140 feet long. I think that that would take you from me to almost the end of the wall in the fellowship hall. 
It's about 36 feet wide. So I think that would be just a little bit narrower than this room. And they had a particularly deep draft between 33 and 36 feet. That's gonna be significant, we'll see in a moment, because that's quite deep. This type of ship was not noted for doing well in heavy seas. The, the, the makeup of the sail and then had no real rudder, it had twin oars, as you can see off the back, paddles at the rear. Verse seven, and when we had sailed slowly now on this particular Alexandrian ship for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus and Pamphylia, uh, Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Very slow progress, we understand. And this is also impactful. When considerable time had passed, verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast, and that fast would be the Day of Atonement, even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. Men, he said, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by, the ship than by what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering there, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Do you see on the map, they're at Fair Havens, the dot in the middle, and they only need to make it to Phoenix. It's about a distance of 40 miles. But Paul warns them, and everybody knew, verse 9, considerable time had now passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast, the Day of Atonement fast, was already over. The Day of Atonement happens in, in a region of time, and different years it happens different times. In the year 59 AD, the Day of Atonement happened on October 5th. We think that is the year that was later than, than most dates. And so if they were, if that fast had already been passed and their progress was slow and slow and difficult and so on and so forth, we are approaching November 11th, which was a time when anything after that was dangerous or shut down. It was getting dangerous, but after November 11th, nobody went anywhere, apparently. And it stayed that way for November, December, and January. Some shipping resumed in February. But the centurion was more persuaded, hey, we only got a little ways to go, and the harbor's not suitable for wintering. Verse 13, and when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquilo, 
And that word is um, a combination of words euro and aquilo, which mean north and east in Greek and Latin. And so this was a nor'easter of nor'easter. And some say it was perhaps even a typhoon. This violent wind called Euracolo, when the ship was caught in it and we could not face the wind, we had to give way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And that was a little skiff boat that they could navigate around the boat and do repairs and some things like that, and maybe send a little skiff into the shore. So they usually towed that little boat, but the, the winds were so violent that it was were ripping it all, and they barely were able to hoist it back up onto the ship. Hoisted it up, then they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship all along the bottom of the hull, fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. The shallows of Sirtis are on the northern part of Africa. There you see Sirtis Major. There was a Sirtis Major and a Sirtis Minor. And that Euraquilo is, is represented by those yellow arrows, just a violent wind rushing down north from the northeast, driving the ship they knew toward the sands of North Africa. These were sandbars that reached miles and miles and miles out into the ocean. You could get hung up on one of those. Nobody would ever find you. You would, you would starve to death or die of dehydration hung up on the sands. So what did they do? Fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. A huge underwater break just to slow us down, keep us from getting close to North Africa. And you can see the scale on the bottom of the map. It wouldn't be all that far from southern Crete to the beginning of those sands. And at the rate this wind was blowing, the next day, verse 18, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Lighten this thing as any way we can. And verse 20, and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Can you feel the despair? All hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Do you feel that hopelessness, the gloom, the despair? Well, it is into this despondency one morning that the apostle speaks. Verse 21, And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, 
God has graciously granted you all those who are sailing with you. Excuse me. But, where was I? Sorry. Graciously granted you all those who are sailing with. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Now, let's keep going. Paul has spoken these words. The days seemed to continue. But when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. Fathom is six feet, so we're at 120 feet. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms, 90 feet. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat, remember that skiff, into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And until the day was about to dawn, so it's still dark, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair of, from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. Let's pause there for a moment. If this ship is from here to the end of that fellowship hall, and a little narrower than this room, and there's grain on there and tackle and 276 people. We're packed in there, aren't we? And we've been on this thing, roller coastering through the waves, and people are desperate, and I picture it much like the scene on the boat that Jonah was on, crying out to their gods, not even eating for these 14 days that they have been on this boat. And all hope had been lost. Why eat when you have no hope? We're going down. All hope gradually being lost. Imagine yourself. No sun or stars visible, being just driven about. No idea where you are. All of the dangers, the sand shoals. So much despair and despondency. Then this guy Paul speaks up. And he has a completely different take on things. We read a moment ago about the sailors sensing they were near land, fearing they'd run aground on the rocks close to the shore. What did they do? 
they put out four anchors from the stern, from the back of the ship. These four anchors were meant to catch onto something if the water got shallow enough and hold the ship so they wouldn't be driven onto the rocks, especially at night when you can't see what's going on. Maybe a reef or something. I'd like to ask you to take your blue sheet and I'd like to think of, and does anybody need one of these? I'd like you to think of these four anchors as a metaphor a metaphor, Jesse Daniel, would you handle this side of the room? And uh, anybody on this side needs, need a blue sheet? Everybody? All right. Good to go? I'd like to think of these four anchors as a metaphor for the anchors of the soul. The Apostle Paul lets us in on what anchored his soul Things are really different for this man. He stands up and gives this word of encouragement. Everybody else is in the slew of despond, but not him. He says, take heart, eat, God, angel, a few other things. So I've titled this message, Four Anchors of the Soul for the Storms of Life. So that word is anchors. Four Anchors of the Soul for the Storms of Life. And it comes from just these verses that are on this blue sheet. Let's read them together again. Um, verse 23, skip down to verse 23. Paul said, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. I'd like you to underline those words, stood before me. It was as clear as clear could be to Paul that God was with him. He had sent his angel, and his angel spoke to him, or God spoke to Paul through his angel, and said, what does he say? He communicated to him, first of all, the anchor of God's presence. The anchor of God's presence. It's a horrific storm. Howling winds, crashing waves, driving rain, creaking timbers. Can you hear the ropes buzzing in the wind? The ship is coming apart. Cables all around it. No idea where we are. The dangers are everywhere. Hope is gone. How could Paul possibly be optimistic, strong, and calm? It was because he was absolutely assured of God's presence. Let's go to the second anchor. Same verse, verse 23. This very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong. Would you underline those words? To whom I belong. He didn't say, my God, an angel of my God. He didn't say, an angel of the God of heaven, or any other number of ways that he could have referred to God. He said, the angel of the God to whom I belong. This was the anchor of God's ownership. He clearly saw himself as God's property. He understood what he wrote elsewhere that he had been bought with a price. There are a number of illustrations in Scripture that show us about ownership. One of them is the sheep and the shepherd. We are, Jesus said, his sheep. We belong to him. 
And furthermore, the Father who gave us to Jesus, we're redeemed. How do you do that? You buy him back. We're ransomed. We're not our own any longer. We belong to him. And so I think we could hear somebody who is assured of God's ownership saying, Father, this storm is absolutely terrifying, but I am calmed by the assurance that I belong to you, the God to whom I belong. What's the third anchor? Same verse, verse 23. This very night, an angel of the God whom I serve. Would you underline whom I serve? This is the anchor of God's service. If God in his providence allows a storm to come to me, his servant, Paul might have said to himself, then so be it. I know it had to pass through my master before it would come to his servant. I am God's servant. I focus on doing that well, and I leave my care to him. My job is to serve him. My job is to serve him. His job is to take care of his servants. Isn't that the truth? Storm? Well, absolutely. A horrific one. But knowing that I am his servant, Paul might have said, is an anchor that enables me to be calm in the storms of life. The God whom I serve. How did Paul always open his letters? Paul, a slave. He didn't just use the word servant. He used the word slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. But there's another interesting thing about this word servant, or the God whom I serve. It's the word, if you're familiar with the Greek, latruo, which is serve in a worshiping way. The God whom I serve in worship sent his angel, and his angel said thus, and thus, and thus. And because I serve him in worship, all of me is devoted to him. I serve him. I belong to him. I serve him. He sent his angel to assure me of his presence. You wonder why I'm calm? I'm able to encourage others? Why I'm able to eat? And then we come to the fourth anchor, verse 25. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Would you underline those words, exactly as I have been told? It's the anchor of God's word that assured Paul in the midst of this horrific storm. So let's think about it. What had, been, what had Paul been told? What was the word of God to Paul that he would have been thinking about in this horrific storm? Well, immediately there was what the angel said, there shall be no loss of life. You, Paul, must stand before Caesar. Well, if I'm going to stand before Caesar, that means I'm not going to drown in this storm. And there's no loss of life, then I'm one of them, so I can't lose my... And furthermore, God has graciously granted you these were the words that would have resonated in Paul's heart as he thought, what do I know that, Paul has or that God has communicated? What is the word of God to me through his angel right now? 
God has graciously granted to you all who are sailing with you. Furthermore, he would have known that they had to run aground on some island. These were the immediate words that Paul would have heard from the angel in the middle of that 14th night. But we can step back a little bit and think about other things that the Apostle Paul would have known God had said. Do you remember chapter 23, 11? After the, the uh, trial there by the Sanhedrin and they just shredded him and so on and so forth, that night the Lord Jesus, we're told, came and stood by his side in the cell. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome. What is the only conclusion that Paul can come to from that word? I won't be drowning in this storm. God's word is good. I'm resting on his word. I'm resting on his word from Jesus standing in my cell. I'm resting on the word he gave me through these angels, or through this angel. It will turn out exactly as I have been told, because God always keeps his word. So God anchored Paul's mind, so anchored Paul's mind that even in the midst of the howling winds and the driving rain and the fears of the sandbars and the boat coming apart and no sign of sun or stars, he was calm and collected and trusting and able to extend courage and encouragement to others. Now, let's finish the story. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Why did they need to lighten that ship? As a grain freighter. Remember I told you the draft was 33 to 36 feet. I think this ceiling is about um, 18 or 19 feet, if I'm remembering when we had our ladders in here. So we've got to go almost double this. That's how far down into the water that ship was riding. Whew. Do we need to lighten the ship and get rid of this wheat so we can get closer to shore and not hit? So, do we need to worry about the sandbars of Sirtis? You betcha. This is a deep running ship. It might have been holding on to all of that wheat earlier on as ballast to hold the ship down in the water, but now it's time to get rid of it. Verse 38, when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize the land. But they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders, remember those two rudders on the sides, and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. Why would that be? Well, the Roman soldiers are guarding a life, and if that life gets away, they pay with their life. So, why don't we just make sure that doesn't happen? But the centurion, verse 43, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard, overboard first, get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened 
that they all were brought safely to the land. Four anchors of the soul for the storms of life. The anchor of God's presence, his ownership, his service, and the anchor of God's word. And thus it happened, just exactly as it had been told, that we all, they all were brought safely to land. And thus it happened, exactly as it had been told, that they ran aground on some island. And thus it happened that all those sailing with Paul were spared. And thus it happened that the other prisoners were not killed by the soldiers. And thus it happened as exactly as I have been told. Now how does all this apply to us 2,000 years later? Well, you don't need me to remind you of the storms of life, do you? The financial storms, you know, there was tight already and then this crisis hit and my goodness. The health storms, your health, someone close to you, man, where did this come from? How about the relational storms, marriage, family, children, parents, friends, former friends? Career storms, pink slips, layoffs, business closing, spiritual storms, temptations, spiritual apathy, disappointment with God, prayerlessness, sin. Some preachers preach that when you come to Christ, it's just smooth sailing from here on out. I wish that were so, but the Bible gives us no such assurance. Do you remember when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee in the storm? They were in that storm precisely because Jesus had told them to go out on the water. Get in that boat and go out there. And that happened on more than one occasion. So we conclude, therefore, that sometimes God puts us in storms to grow us, perhaps, to refine us, cause us to depend on Him, to enlarge our view of Him. Peter did, didn't he? Fell on his face. They all said, who is this man? To enlarge our view of Him, to deepen our faith, or to testify about Him to a watching world. But then sometimes we're in storms because we have been disobedient. Maybe it wasn't out-and-out out disobedience. Maybe it was just some fudging of the truth or bending of the rules or reinterpreting them. That's how a lot of us do it, isn't it? Maybe we're in a sin, not because it was a sin of commission, but rather a sin of omission. So then in those cases, the storm may be the Lord's loving correction or discipline of us, right? Sometimes we're in a storm owing to others' mistakes or foolishness or sin. How about this particular don't put the boat out this late in the fall. No, 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 stay. No, we're gonna, we got this. We got that. Oh, there's our south wind. We're going. Foolishness, perhaps. Or mistakes. Or outright sin on the part of others. I, how often does a wife endure 
and children and family endure the foolishness of a husband. Sometimes we truly have no earthly idea why the storms come upon us. Isn't that right? All we know is it's a storm of epipurations. Eurocolo, here it comes, rushing down. These four anchors, I believe, transcend all these thousands of years for us as well. So anchor your soul, anchor your soul in the storms of life with the assurance of God's presence. Is that ever in question, child of God? Well, theologically, no. But practically, is it in question sometimes? He himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But do we prove that by our practice? We forget about his presence. Or we doubt his presence in this storm. Or we don't think maybe his presence is sufficient. Now, would you and I ever write those words out? Probably not, but we act as if we believed that way. So how can we become assured of his presence in the storm? Well, I think you should read his word. Because in his word, we don't have an angel, but we have his word speaking to us that he is with us over and over and over again talking to us of these things. Memorize key statements that he has told us and review those and take action like this. Thank him in the midst of the storm for his presence. Lord, I thank you. The winds are howling. The ropes are buzzing. The sands are not too far off, I'm sure. But I thank you for your presence. I choose to trust and rest in your presence. And with your help, I choose not even to worry about the outcome because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And others. Number two, with the assurance of God's ownership, anchor your soul in those, so that in the storms of life, you're convinced that you belong to him, period. I belong to him. No one can harm me or rob me or you or cheat you or do you wrong without his permission because you belong to him. You're his. You're bought with a price. You're the apple of his eye. Does he disregard those possessions of his? You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you wonder. And he says, you're mine. And that's why I walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the storms of your life, anchor your soul with the assurance of God's service. You're his servant. Remember, that's what you decided way back when, when you gave your life to him. That you'd be all about his kingdom and his will and his plans and not yours. Remember, you're going to seek first his kingdom. And then that word, serve, in a worship sense. I am going to serve you in worship even in this Storm. Is that what Job did? Naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. And he worshipped God. 
Is that a statement of faith? Can the God of heaven resist himself when a servant of his, when a child of his responds in the storm to him with worship? Do you remember the children of Israel? The armies began to be defeated when they went out worshiping. Thrilling, isn't it? Anchor your soul in the storms of life with the assurance, the determination to serve him, to worship him. And number four, anchor your soul in the storms of life with the assurance, the truths of God's word. Are you overwhelmed by some storm? Some storm? Have you been many days without sun or stars appearing? Are you gradually losing all hope? Maybe you are, even as I speak. Or maybe it's just around the bend on the journey of your life. This is what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Answer this question when you're in a storm. What is it that God has said to me? What is it God has told me? And pull this word out and begin to review all of the things that he has told you. What has he told you? Can I personalize them? I work all things out for the good of those who love me, son or daughter. You can cast all your cares on me because I care for you. And if you seek first my kingdom, I will add all the things that you need to you, whatever they are. You can count on that. I gave you my word. I will give you the power to resist temptation and flee. There's no temptation I'm going to allow to come your way that I won't also give you the power to resist and flee. Child, I will give you the strength to do whatever I have called you to do. And more and more and more. Is it possible for God to lie? Well, of course not. So then we can go all the way to the Father with these promises of what he has said. So as we come to a close, what has God said in his word that speaks to the storm you're perhaps facing even now? Can you hear him telling you what he wants you to hear right from his word? To your heart. Father, we thank you for these assurances. We call them metaphors of anchors, but we just use that as something to hold on to it. And there are many other anchors that you have given to us, like your goodness, your greatness, your sovereignty, your power. But we're holding on to these four this morning for the storms of life that you've allowed us to go through for whatever reason. And we choose to respond as our elder brother, the Apostle Paul, did. We take his example and we ask you for strength and courage to follow in his steps and to honor you and to please you. You're present with us. We belong to you. We worship you. We serve you. It's all about you. And if some of that has cooled or been tempered, Lord, reignite those flames of our desire to serve you. And we rest on your words. What does Hebrews say? 
for God who cannot lie. We remind ourselves of these things. The storms are indeed ferocious. And this one we've read about this morning reminds us that you are above all. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'd like to turn our attention to the Lord's table with these same points. His presence. Did I lose that? And those who are helping, would you join me at the table, please? His presence. Do you see in the emblems the message of his presence? So present was our Savior that he descended from heaven to take on flesh and blood. So present is our Savior that he gives us bread and a cup by which to remember his presence. Do you see the act of, do you see the, the statement of our ownership in the bread and the cup? Bought with a price. Bought with a price. What a price it was. Who communicates the, who communicates the ex exceptional nature of the price like Jesus? This is my body. This is my blood. Broken, poured out. Who invites us to worship, to serve him? more than him who gave us the bread and the cup to worship him even as we take the bread and the cup and who said with his own words I am with you always the one who laid down his life for you and for me